Today is part four in Ephesians series. It's six parts, so we're getting towards the end here. We're moving through halfway. And I entitled today's lesson, Bodybuilding, A Calling to Live a Life Worthy of Christ. And I want to begin with a quote that's not on your handout. Now, I put a lot of quotes all over your handout. Those are when you get bored. When you get bored, you read those and just kind of go, oh, look, that guy's more intelligent than my pastor. That's kind of the point of why I put those things on there. But this one is not on your sheet, so I need you to just kind of listen to it. It's a quote by John MacArthur. He said this. Too many Christians are glad to have the spiritual security, blessings, and promises of the gospel, but have too little sense of responsibility in conforming to its standards and obeying its commands. The Lord expects us to act like the new persons we have become in Jesus Christ. He expects His standards to become our standards. His purposes, our purposes. His desires, our desires. And His nature, our nature. The Christian life is simply the process of becoming what you are. Now, that's going to set a tone for everything we're about to study today. And I want to begin with kind of a a concept that I want you to lock into. And it's this idea that for us to move forward, we have to believe it matters. I used an analogy last night that I took my kids to Chuck E. Cheese the other day. Every Wednesday night we do daddy-daughter date day and I have to come up with something new where me and the two girls go out and find out something new. It's ceramics or it's something else. We're always doing something. And we decided to uh, for dad to bail out. And not have to do anything but pay a million dollars. And we went to Chuck E. Cheese. And in there, there's a, there's a little game where you take the little hammer thing and you hit uh, the little pad and the little light goes up. Which has nothing to do with how hard they hit it. It's all preset. But anyway, they thought it was cool. So you hit the little thing and the little light goes up. And if it hits the top, you get a special amount of tickets. Now, let's you've all seen that in a carnival where you hit the thing and if it's electronic, it sends off sirens. What if I told you as a congregation, I said, we're going to do that up here on stage. We're going to have fun. Anyone that can hit it and send it all the way to the top, I'll give you a free car. Everyone be like, oh, that's awesome. It's amazing. And as you're going up here, you happen to look over on the side and notice that it's unplugged. Okay, at some point, you're just going to go, okay, we're not doing that anymore. I'm not going to play that game. It doesn't matter. Here's what I want to tell you. I want to tell you that in Christianity, unfortunately, a lot of us have no desire to grow spiritually because we feel like it doesn't matter. I'm never going to be any different. I've been struggling with the same sin I struggled with seven years ago. Nothing ever changes. What's the point? I have a fill in the blank in front of you on your sheet that I need you to burn into your mind. It is this. We won't always be as we are now. We won't always be as we are now. We will grow for two primary reasons. Number one, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit if we are Christians. If we are believers in Christ, the Holy Spirit is in us and he will get us towards the finish line many times whether we like it or not. But a second reason is if we put any effort into the idea of getting out of God's way and allowing him to work through us, if we begin to put things apart or away from us as God asks and begin to grab our new identity, there's no way we won't grow. And I need you to understand and believe that transformation in Jesus Christ is possible. Otherwise, you'll never even bother trying. Part of the tension I hold as a pastor up here 
is balancing two things. One is distributing to you or sharing with you my weaknesses. I do that for the purpose of connection and for the purpose of never trying to appear to be something that I'm not. But on the same time, I also need to show you motivation to say, listen, I've been doing this for a really long time. And if there's no difference and in my life hasn't changed, if I'm not any closer to Christ or more conformed to Christ, then you may feel like there's no point in trying. So I try to balance out role modeling that it matters and talking about victory in Christ and at the same time trying to remain not cocky, not arrogant, pretty direct, pretty authentic in weaknesses. You have to understand there's a tension there. But I need you to understand there are things that I do not struggle with today that I struggled with 10 years ago. There are things that I understand about God today I did not understand two years ago. There are things that I know more and more about how the world works and how my part is in that. There are things that are settled in my soul that were not one year ago. And I need you to understand that every time we are here, every time we engage with God's word, every time we engage in meaningful fellowship, every time that we spend time in the prayer closet, all those things matter. And I believe very strongly that we will not always be as we are right now. Sometimes it's because we've engaged with the spiritual disciplines and we're really trying to be discipled by Christ and we're really putting forward the effort. Sometimes it's because we're falling down, feeling absolutely worthless and crying out, God, I'll never be anything more than what you make me. Either way, we're moving forward. That's what we do as believers. So I begin with where our passage is. Why don't you turn there with me already? Ephesians chapter 4. Would you turn there? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. It's page 828 in the Bible's handed to you. 828. Ephesians chapter 4. If you're looking for it, it's almost all the way to the right in your Bibles. New Testament. Now, what happened was... Uh, the first three chapters of this book, and uh, we've been teaching one chapter a week. If you've missed any of those parts, you got to get the free download, get the free CD, whatever it is, make sure you catch up with us because the back three don't make sense without a light of the first three. The first three chapters were all about why we're fired up to be saved. Why we're so excited to be following Christ. Why we have joy in our salvation. We have got to embrace all the incredible grace and blessings that have been poured out our way. Otherwise, the back three become monotony. But what those first three bought us in everything that Christ has done on the cross, everything the gospel represents, everything that the new covenant is about, what that bought us was freedom to live and become who we were designed to be. That's what the back three are about. So all the heavy lifting that God did for us has produced in us a new character, a new nature. And that we have a chance to live out. Because you need to understand that as a Christian, you have an opportunity to live a different kind of life. If you don't know Jesus, you don't actually have that opportunity. So if we have been saved, we can be excited to know that the door is wide open to change. Amen? Amen. All right, put you to sleep already. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. Now, I'm not telling you this changing stuff's going to be easy, all right? Just like Israel trying to acquire the promised land. There's a lot of work to get it done, right? I understand. Getting out the old garbage, putting in the new stuff, re-racking our new identity. This stuff's tough, but it's all worth it. 
And that's why we study. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 3. Let's just read that. I'll pray for the word this morning and then we'll tear it apart. See what God has for us. Paul begins like this. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you open our eyes and our heart that we might spiritually discern that which we must know for today, that we would be different tomorrow. Lord, if it's a matter of training, may you give us the proper training regimen or exercise by which we could strengthen up our weakest areas and not give Satan a foothold. And Lord, we pray that you would give us all the grace reminders that we need to know that we walk forward in your freedom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As a prisoner for the Lord then, Paul says, so where's he writing from? But prison in Rome. He was under house arrest. You remember that? Chained 24 hours a day to a Roman guard, but yet he still had somewhat of an apartment and an ability to have friends come and go. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, he didn't say the prisoner of Rome, he said it again here, I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ, meaning I am bound to him indefinitely, and I am bound to him willingly. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you, that word in Greek, parakaleo, means to beg, to beseech. Paul's really serious about this. Uh, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, that's a pretty intense statement. You say, what are you what are you talking about? What do you mean? What do you want from me? The word of or phrase live a life worthy is axios in Greek, and it means equal weights on both sides. For example, first three chapters are all about all this incredible stuff God has done for you. On the other side is your lifestyle. Does your lifestyle conform or equal in measure to your identity? In other words, are you living who you are? That's really the whole point of this thing. He said, I beg you to live in line with your new identity. That's what he's calling us for. But how in the world are we ever going to live a life worthy of everything that God has done? You would kind of say, well, I'm going to fail all the time. Okay, hold on. Here's how I believe God defines worthiness. Is your heart all in? Every time God talks about things about righteousness, he usually refers to a heart issue. He doesn't need you for results. He's always been able to handle the results. If he wants you super mature and to be the next Billy Graham and blah, 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 he can do that. He can get that done. That's not a concern. What he's concerned about is, are you all in with him? Is your heart engaged? Do you want to be like Christ? That I believe you move in and you say, God, I'm all there. I'm ready to go. What do you want from me? Because I'm willing to be your clay to be molded. That's really the heart of what he's looking for. And the whole time you do realize that certain efforts do count. But at the same time, if we looked at it honestly, you better keep grace in mind because you're going to screw up a lot. Yeah. I mean, that's the same way it is for all of us. You have to constantly balance out the idea of striving and the idea of grace and keep those things both in your mind. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And he marks out four virtues that you need to engage in in order to get this done. What's the first one? He says, 
be completely what? Humble. Now, that's a really bizarre word for Paul's day. Why? Because what Christians would do is if they couldn't find a word in the language they were writing in, they'd go grab one and make up a new context for it. That's kind of what we did with uh, Theos. We kind of grabbed that term, made it God for them. Uh, Paul began to search around in Greek, common Greek that he was writing in. And he said, I'm trying to look for a word that's like, I don't know, where you think of other people more valuable than yourself. What's, what's that one? In the Greek language, there's no positive word for humility. Zero. That's not something they appreciated. They said, slaves talk about that. All the rest of you, if you say that, you're a loser. Don't ever use that word around me. It's an insult. So Paul had to grab a negative term out of the Greek language and give a positive spin on it. And he said, hold on, you guys think it's bad. What I'm telling you is because of Jesus Christ, you must think of others more often than yourself. You must put them higher up in line and put their needs ahead of yours. We're going to call that humility. Ah, that began to spin the minds of the readers. They're thinking, why would I do that? Because that's what Jesus does. Oh, well, that's weird. Now, remember, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking less about yourself. You remember that quote? I ripped that off from somebody really smart. You guys <laughs> write that one down. Okay. The deal is, is that we constantly, if we degrade ourselves and go, I'm such a loser, I'm such a jerk, I'm such horrible, blah, 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 blah. And all we do is wander around and mope around and be melancholy about it and say, I hate myself. Do you understand that's not spiritually good? We all kind of try to think that in some way that's, that's honoring to the Lord. No, that's called degrading to God. If all you do is walk around and whine about how God made you, that's not exactly humility. That's just called complaining. Are we all following that? That's not what he's talking about. You can think of yourself as amazing creation of God just as long as you put other people ahead of you. You see what I'm saying? I'm not telling you to debase yourself. I don't think that's wise or honoring to the Lord. I'm telling you to think of yourselves. Yeah, true. In light of Jesus. And when you do think of yourself and put yourself up against Jesus, you don't look all that hot. Okay. When you put yourself up against me and everybody hanging out here, you probably look stellar. I get that. But that's garbage in comparison to who Jesus is. When you start putting yourself up against the perfect, pure perfection that is Jesus, you, you automatically know who you are. See, humility should be natural to a Christian because you know Jesus. So it shouldn't be real hard for you to go, I guess I'm not God. That should actually be pretty easy for a Christian. And yet we still wrestle with it. Isn't that weird? If we know Jesus, why do we think we're all that? That's kind of odd. We pick up the second one. He said, not only do we need to be completely humble, but we need to be completely what? Gentle. Did you see that word? Gentle. Now, in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and humble of heart. You remember that? So Jesus was known as gentle. This is also the word that's translated as meekness. Who else was called meek? But Moses. Do you guys see Moses as a wimpy man? Moses is a pretty tough guy, wouldn't you agree? I mean, that guy, his temper kicked him out of the promised land. He's not exactly Mr. Lighthearted and fun, okay? Jesus, Moses, both considered meek, both considered gentle. So what does this word mean? The word is used to tame wild animals. Isn't that bizarre? So in other words, you got a wild stallion who's incredibly powerful, strong, runs at a million miles an hour. 
What happens when you harness that horse? Does it become weak? No, it's channeled. That's the only difference. That's what this word means. It means taking all the power that you have and channeling it properly. That's what gentleness means. It's almost this idea of, and I was thinking of this analogy because I taught it about 10 years ago. It was the idea that, you know, there's linebackers, you're watching professional football and these guys are enormous. You know, I'm six, three, I'm a pretty tall guy. These guys are three times my width and they're like, you know, six inches taller than me. And these guys just want to rip each other's heads off. That's what they do. They just tear at each other and they're going to destroy and push over and knock over and give people concussions. And yet you hand them a brand new newborn baby. And what do they do? All that power immediately channels down to gentleness. And they are no longer that big, tough, rip them apart guy. But they've not become weak. They've just channeled it properly. That is the word here. As Christians, we must harness in and properly channel the power that God has given us, whatever our personality. So number one, we must be humble. Number two, we must be gentle. Number three, we must be what? Patient. That word is macrothumia in Greek, and it has two definitions. One is never give up. And number two, don't snap under pressure when someone's insulting you. That's the second word. It's interesting. The one commentary used this example. They said, you know how there's a big dog on the porch and they, and somebody buys a new puppy and they put it next to the big dog and the puppy's going and it's constantly chewing on its ear and constantly irritating it. The big dog just sits there and waits. And it's this whole idea that the dog knows I will destroy you. If you, at some point, if I snap, I will kill you. And the idea is that this little irritation all the time that's biting on his ear is not worth getting riled about and destroying another dog. The whole point was this idea of going, I'm not going to snap. I can do this. I can hang in there. I know this is irritating. I know this is grating. I know this is hard, but I will be patient with you. You understand? The fourth thing is what? Bearing with one another in love. That means to cut each other some slack and to walk alongside each other. But it uses that famous Christian word, agape, to bear with one another in love. Uh, agape, the best definition I heard recently is this, unconquerable goodwill for another. You know what that means? It means loving, caring about someone else, wanting the best for them, and no matter what they do, they can't shut that down. That's what it means, unconquerable goodwill for another person the best place we have an example of this in our lives is parents how they feel about their kids they say no matter how much garbage and stuff you sling my way i will still seek your best interest and you can't shut that down you can't conquer my love for you that is agape that's how we have to begin to treat each other that's the point of what paul is saying and he said and if we do those four things it will help us do this, verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Okay, here's the deal. In the church, there's already a common denominator for everybody, a common ground. We are all hanging out together and we can all have dialogue because of what reason? Jesus Christ. I can sit there and have a conversation with you going, I needed Jesus, do you? Yeah, me too. Okay, now we have something to talk about. That's the unity we already have. Our job is not to screw that up. We all tracking on that one? We need to be able to keep the unity that the Holy Spirit already started. But notice it says what? Make every effort. 
One of my favorite passages in the Bible, because it's so practical, says, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. Did you hear the first phrase of that? As much as it depends on you. For example, let's say the church splits, right? I'm sure at some point in our history, there'll be a church split. I don't know. It just seems to happen to everybody. All right. So at some point, our church splits. One side rages against the other side. As a pastor, I may not have the strength or power or authority or influence to hold the church together. But insofar as it depends on me, I cannot make it worse. You understand what I'm saying? As far as my side of the ledger, as far as what I'm responsible for, am I heading towards peacemaking or heading towards dissension? That's what we have to watch out for. As much as it depends on you, don't be part of the problem. Be part of the solution. So these are very practical. And the idea is if we begin to put these these things on, we become our new identity in Christ. So he shifts over. He said, now let me tell you why I believe that dissension in the church or division in the church or factions in the church is a logical absurdity. It actually cannot be by definition. You go, Paul, what are you talking about? I said, well, let me define how this thing works. Look at verse four. There is one body. Now that means there's one family of God, not two, one, right? We all tracking on that. Therefore, you better figure out why you're treating other denominations the way you're treating them. Why you think the way you think about other denominations, because either they're in the family of God or they're out of the family of God. You better make that determination in your mind, because right now you're treating them like second class citizens. They're either your brothers and sisters or they're not, period. You have no other option. So we have one body. There's one spirit, which is who? The Holy Spirit. You don't get a bunch of options. Just as you were called to one hope. When you're called, meaning there's one cleansing, one rescue, whatever you want to call it. There's only one way to be cleansed. There's one Lord, which means there's one master calling the shots. So if the shots you're hearing are different than mine, one of us is wrong because there's one master calling the shots. There's one faith, meaning there's one way to salvation. There's one baptism, meaning the identifying mark that you are in the family of God. There's one God, one sovereign ruler, and there's one father of all, the originator, who's over all, through all, and in all. He said, now, if there's only one, why do you keep saying there's multiple baskets? There's only one. That's a logical absurdity. You can't have multiple divisions. You may have multiple options of how you want to display your faith. Or I like going to this church because that pastor feeds me breakfast. Or I want to go to this church because the music's super great. Okay, whatever. We all pick churches for lousy reasons. But the point is, we go to different churches. Now, if you want to say there's different ways to display your worship to God and you enjoy hanging out with this group a little bit more, I understand that. But if you begin to say, no, 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 there's multiple families of God with Christ as their head, you're out of line. That's absolutely impossible. There is one family of God throughout all history and throughout the whole world. That is our family. So then what? He said, it's not just about the unity. The unity is super important, but I need you to understand that when you look out, you see a lot of diversity. You see an awful lot of difference. Why is that? Verse 7. But within this unified core, he said, to each one of us individually, grace has been given that's an individualized unearned gift we've all been given a present as christ 
apportioned it, meaning as Christ said, you need this one. This one matches you. You're a little girl, you get a little girl bike. You're a little boy, you get a little fire truck. There you go. The idea is that he gives us stuff about what we're going to need. Oh, you're going to be a gardener? Let me give you a wheelbarrow. Oh, you're going to be this? Let me give you this. Here's part of the frustration I have. We long for each other's gifts. Why? So we could not use them? Okay, if you're not going to teach, why do you need the teaching gift? If you are not an evangelist, why do you need the gift of evangelism? If you're not a prophet, why do you want the gift of prophecy? If you're not going to heal anybody, why do you need the gift of healing? And yet all we do is long for what we don't have. God said, hold on a second. I asked you to do this for me and I'm going to empower you to do it. Why do you want that guy's gift? You won't be able to use it where you're at. Do you understand my point? Is he's giving you a very specific gift pack for what he's asked you to do. If he gives you just random gifts, that's a bunch of waste and there's no point. It's just confusion. So it says he gave all of us a very specific pack of gifts as he wanted for specific use. And then he says in verse eight, quoting loosely Psalm 68, this is why it says when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Okay. What does this mean? When did Jesus ascend on high? Right after the resurrection, right? Are we all clear on that? Jesus died, rose again. Then what? They saw him go up in the sky. You guys remember that part? Okay, when Jesus went up, he had a train behind him. You guys know what a train is? It's not a whoo-whoo. It's not one of those, right? A train. Okay, the idea is as a victor would walk through the city streets after um, beating up somebody, he would have his officers in line behind him. He'd have his people behind him that he set free. He would have the captives of the bad guys. He would have the spoils of war and he would march through the city. That was called his train. Okay, just like in a wedding dress, what do you have coming out the back of the dress that's long? But a train, that's the idea. It's something that trails after you. It's like a wake. Now, when Jesus fired up to heaven, he had all this stuff that it represented, what he had just accomplished. And in that train were good things like all the people he set free. And it was also all the people he conquered, which was what? Satan, death, hell, all these things. They were conquered and they were led in his train. He looked really great doing it. And when he got up to heaven, he turned around and fired gifts down to his kids. Why? Remember when Jesus said to his disciples, it's better that I go away. Why did he say it was better that he go away? So we could send the Holy Spirit. In other words, I got to get out of here because only one of us are going to be the big dog at any given time. So I'm going to step out so Holy Spirit can kick down. And when he moves, he's going to fire out individual gifts to you, dive inside you and empower you to go worldwide. That's what he was trying to tell you. So here we have this. He said, and Paul uses this just to tell them that they've all been receiving gifts from God. Then once again, Paul goes on a really neat tangent. Tangent is verse nine and 10. So let's hold off on that in a second. We'll address it in a moment. Look at verse 11. What kind of presence did the church get? The church got significant leadership to get them founded. That's the gifts that he fired back. What did those gifts look like? They came in four packages. The first gift they opened up was called what? 
but apostles. It was he who gave some to be apostles. Now, apostles were, uh, as far as the specific definition of an apostle, it was the original 12. You guys remember the 12 that Jesus said, you, 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 you. All right, fantastic. We're going to go out and change the world. Then one of them bailed out. You remember who that was? That was Judas, and he got replaced by Matthias. All right, so he steps in. There was 12 apostles specific of Christ, and they were known for a couple different reasons. Number one, they were selected by Christ personally. Number two, they witnessed his resurrection. And number three, they could do signs and wonders. And we're talking old school, crazy stuff, healing people, casting out demons, all kinds of weird stuff. All right. That was the 12 apostles. A 13th was added to the list. Who was that? Paul, the apostle, the guy writing this letter. Why? Because he was personally commissioned by Christ. He saw the risen Lord and he had signs and wonders. That's why he's a 13th. Now, that's not the only apostles. That's the first tier. The second tier level of named apostles in scripture were guys like James, the brother of Jesus. Remember, he was an elder of the church, a pillar of the church. Then there was guys like Apollos and Barnabas. You guys remember these names? Those guys were all defined as apostles. They meant they were significant leadership that got the church founded. Do we have apostles today? Only in the loosest, loosest sense of the word, meaning is there significant leadership that establishes the church? But no, not really. But this was a gift that the church received initially. What's the second gift they got to open? Some to be what? Prophets. These are creepy folk. Okay, here's why. Before the Bible was locked down, before all these words were written down that you are looking at here, someone spoke for God. Those were the prophets. They would speak, thus saith the Lord, literally revelation from God. That's weird. Can you imagine if that was your gift? I just got to tell you right now, that's too scary for me. I don't ever want to be wrong because you know what happens to a false prophet? You're stoned to death. Yeah, not a lot of room for error on this one. I don't want that gift, okay? It's the idea that they spoke for God. But if you read the earliest, some of the earliest writings of the church, it's called the Didache. If you read that, this concept of a prophet became abused right off the bat. People started calling themselves prophets, traveling around, trying to get tons of cash, saying they spoke for God. And eventually everyone just shut down that whole office. Said, we're done with you. We needed you before we had scripture. But you know what? We have scripture now. You're done. Thank you very much. We don't need any more of that. And that one locked down. Now, are there prophets today? Not of new revelation. Absolutely not. If you have someone that shows up and says they have something that's brand new and there's an adjustment to scripture, either pick up a rock or run away. I suggest the latter. Anyway, it's less jail time. That's all I'm saying. Okay. However, prophet also means to foretell or to share the word of God. And so in that way, I fulfill the office of a prophet here because I'm foretelling or sharing what is already locked in. Do you see what I mean? That. So the third one, what's the third gift they got to open? They got apostles. They got prophets. What's the third one? They got evangelists. Those are traveling missionaries that would break new ground. We still have those all over the world breaking new ground. What's the fourth gift they got to open? pastor teachers. Now that is two words that describe the same thing. The word pastor is where we get the word shepherd from. What do pastor teachers do? They guide like spiritual parenting. They instruct, they teach, they govern, they protect, they meet needs, they shelter. They do all these different things. That's my job here at this church. I'm a pastor teacher. Now you have to understand it was a little bit more important for those guys for the first 1400 years. Why? 
There was no printing press. Are we all following this? So if you want to know what the Bible said, guess who you had to come talk to? Me. And I'm going to tell you exactly what the Bible says. And if you disagree with me, guess what I'm going to say? You can't read. I can. Look, I'm going to tell you exactly what it means. Is it no wonder why Paul said that teachers would incur a what? Stricter judgment. Why? Because they were literally telling people what was life and not. Nowadays, it's so to the common man. That's why all of a sudden I can kind of take a little breather. Because everyone will just go back and read it and go, uh-uh. <laughs> See, I don't nearly have the same power that they did before. It moves on. What is the purpose of all leadership? Verse 12. To prepare God's people for works of service. That word for prepare is a really, really bizarre word. It's used in multiple ways. It's used to set a broken bone. How does that feel? Ouch. It means to mend broken nets. It means to prepare nets to go fishing. So basically, it means to do whatever it takes to make one useful. So is our job pretty varied? Yeah. We do whatever it takes to make us mature as a congregation. That's what leadership does. We move on. It says our goal is to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith. It's called a healthy family. And in the knowledge of the Son of God... That's called a personal relationship with Jesus and to become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Is it possible to become mature as a congregation? You better believe it. It was just labeled right there in front of you. That word to attain is a cool word. It means for a traveler to reach his destination. Can we ever reach a destination of maturity? Yes, we can. Can we reach the destination of perfection? Not this side of heaven. But those are two different things. You understand, he pits things. He says, what's his next line? There will, then we will no longer be infants. Do you remember that? He pits infants versus adults. Are adults perfect? No, but they're definitely a lot more mature than infants. That's what we're going for. But remember, I skipped verses 9 and 10. Let's go back there and let me just give you one quick highlight. It says right here, Paul puts in a little tangent. He says, what has he ascended? Meaning, in other words, Jesus had to jump up from somewhere. Where did he go up from? What does it mean that he ascended? Except that at some point he had descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended, Christ, is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. You have two choices on what this means. I'm going to tell you my opinion of what it means. So the first option is it means the incarnation of Christ. What does the incarnation of Christ mean? It means when Jesus became flesh and lived here on earth. That's what I believe this is talking about right here. What it means is you guys read Philippians 2. It talks about how, how uh, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be hung on to, but he gave up the perks of the Godhead and came down here amongst earth. That's what I believe it's talking about. Your second option is what Jesus did on Easter Saturday. You guys know what I'm talking about? On Easter Friday, what happened? It's called Good Friday. What happened to Jesus? He died. What happened on Easter Sunday? He rose. What happened on Saturday? Uh, I don't know. Okay, that's the point. Is I've taught a number of lessons on this issue, because, but unfortunately it's speculation. But they're in 1 Peter, um, I believe it's 1 Peter 3.6. You've got to jot these down for reading later. 1 Peter 3.19 and 1 Peter 4.6 refer to a really weird concept. And it's what happened on Saturday that Jesus descended to Sheol to proclaim victory to those that had already died. 
Now then, that's a totally different lesson. Don't have time to go into it. Move on. Here we go. Verse 14. Then if we do all these things, if we put on these virtues, if we make this effort to maintain unity, if we use the leadership that God has given us, then what can happen? Well, then we will no longer be infants. We tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Uh, real quick, you and I need to grow up in the Lord partially due to protection. Do you understand that there are people trying to lead you astray? Are we all pretty clear on that one? Okay, have you ever watched late night TV? Fantastic. How about all those churchy channels? Pretty creepy. Okay, here's the point. There are a bunch of people that are trying to lead you astray. The two words that are used here, the first one is what? Um, it's kubia in uh, Greek. I'm trying to find out where it was. Cunning. That's the word. Uh, you know what kubia means? Kubia means uh, loaded dice. It's a gambling word. It means when you can spin and throw the dice and have them land a certain way, you've just cheated everybody. That's the first word for those folks. The second word for craftiness is panergia in Greek, and it means an error made to look like truth. Okay, so are there people trying to mess with your head? Yeah. If you're an infant, you're going to fall for it. If you're mature, you won't. And you know what? We cannot have that kind of open door in our church where everybody's trying to buy into bogus philosophy all the time. It'll throw us out of whack. So your job is to be mature. My job is to be mature. We all tracking on that one? It says, instead, speaking the truth in love, and that's what we try to do here, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, Paul said, that you must no longer live as unbelievers. The word there is Gentiles, but you go Gentiles. Wait a second. I thought he was talking to Christian Gentiles. He is. That's a metaphor to talk about unbelievers. No longer live like the rest of the world do in their futility of their thinking. That word means useless for any good act. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Why are they ignorant? Because their hearts got hard. How did their hearts get hard? Because they kept saying no to God. And at some point, God says, okay. The word hardening is poros in Greek. And it's like if you break a bone in a calcium deposit forms and you can no longer straighten your arm out, it becomes harder than stone. That's the word. It says your heart has become so hard that you're now void of any feeling. You cannot respond to anything. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. In other words, they've been reduced to animal instinct with excessive greediness. You, however, didn't come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in jesus you were taught with regard to your former way of life before jesus to put off your old self he uses a lot of the phrases of remove those old clothing and then i read a commentary and it was pretty funny it says and when you take off your clothes don't drop them on the ground because you'll be tempted to pick them back up and put them back on later get rid of them get them out of the house you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires and you were called to be made new in the attitude of your minds 
and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So how do we become new? It starts with our thoughts, thinking different things, being renewed by scripture, thinking different thoughts, making different choices, developing different habits. And ta-da, you have a different kind of lifestyle. Simple as that. Therefore, I challenge you with these things, he said. And indeed, Paul gives us six corrections or six challenges. What must we do in church with each other? Number one, therefore, each one of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we're all members of one body. In other words, quit lying to each other. Quit being deceitful. We can't grow that way. We're a family. Stop harming each other. Number two, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. In other words, harness your anger properly. Number three, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but he must work doing something useful with his own hands and he may have something to share with those in need. In other words, why are you working? Is it just for you? Oh, it's for you and for us. Got it. Number four, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. This is not talking about simple profanity. This is talking about really, really nice said words in a super acceptable Christian context, kind of like gossip and slander. You can say really nice things in church and slander people. You understand? I don't care how frilly it sounds. I don't care how nice it sounds. If you're tearing other people down, you're out of line. Number five. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In other words, stop telling God no. And number six, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander with every form of malice. Those all have one thing in common, and that is they see everyone else as opponents, enemies. Stop it. We're family. He said, as you put off that stuff, I want you to put on these three things. Number one, be what? Kind. That is an act of the will and of the mind. It says determined to do right by someone else. Be kind. Number two is what? Be compassionate. That is an emotional term. It means from the very depth of you, feel it for each other. If you are a cold, detached member of the family here in Bridgeway, you're blowing it. You're out of line. You are to feel what we feel. Share what we share. Grieve. Rejoice with those who grieve and rejoice. And finally, even if you do everything right, guess what? Someone's going to hurt you. And that's the last one, which is what? Forgiving each other as Jesus Christ forgave you. Here's the deal. We're going to be a healthy family. But it's just going to take a lot of work. And we're going to have an awful lot of family meetings and discussions. And yeah, we're going to have to go back and, you know, talk about some correction. Yeah, there's times when we're out of line. There's times when we're wonderful. Unfortunately, in our church, we get along really, really well for a bad reason. We're disconnected. We don't ever argue. You guys, there is not a lot of infighting in our church. It is absolutely mellow. As far as worrying about this person hating this person, doesn't happen barely at all. Why? Because nobody knows each other. 
as a pastor, makes my job a little easier, but it's devastating to our spiritual growth. So as a family, we got to grow together. And when we grow together, we get closer. And when we get closer, we irritate the living daylights out of one another. But you know what? Is there another way to be a family? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for the excitement and belief that we can be different tomorrow. That we don't have to settle for the accusing of the enemy that says that we will never be anything. That we will never move forward. I don't believe that. And I pray right now, Lord, that as you have already empowered us, that our eyes would be open to the victory we have. And we would move forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.